This talk by Joan Sutherland, called Embracing Change 2, was given at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, on August 4, 2012. In our work together, at moments like this, after we say hello, everyone, sometimes instead of saying, how are you, we ask, how is it now? And that little shift makes a big difference because within the question, how is it now, there's another question. How do you define the it? How big is it? Is it the space that's bounded by your skull and your skin? Is it you and the people you came up for the weekend with? Is it this room? Is it bigger than that? How big does it go? So that question, how is it now, also carries within it the implication of constant change. If you ask it now, and you ask it later today, and you ask it in six months, it's going to be different. The answer is going to be different. And it keeps us aware that change, whether we're conscious of it or not, is going on all the time. So let me ask you, really, truthfully, how is it now? And we won't do anything with mics or anything like that, but if anybody just wants to call out a word or two, an adjective or a quality about how it is now, however you define that it. It is very quiet. <laughs> it, is, it is trusting. It is trusting. It is trusting. Beautiful. Trusting, exciting, calming, emptying. Is that what she said? Informative, Informative, curious, spacious. spacious. Any dissenting voices? Hmm? Provocative. Provocative, great. Also hot. (laughs) Also, afternoon and maybe a bit tired. Some of it might be a bit tired. That's all right, too. Okay, thank you for that. Um, On Friday night, when we asked you all to speak to what had brought you here, what your intentions were, and what you're looking for. I was really moved by your responses. Um, I was moved by the sincerity of the, the searching that I felt was going on and your willingness to be so honest in a, in a space in which you may not know very many people at all about it. So I heard that sincerity and that willingness as a kind of call. And what it evoked in me was a deep desire to respond to that call. So that's the second thing, after how is it now, that I want to say about change. We can hold change as something that comes in through the gate, something that happens to us, something that comes in from somewhere else and affects us, and that we have to do something about. I must do something about this or that we feel overwhelmed by. I don't know what to do about this, and it's really got me paralyzed. We can hold it like that, or we can bring in this other idea 
that it's all call and response, that the world is always calling us. Uh, the birds here are so wonderful, and every morning when I, so far, every, every morning being this morning, <laughs> but it stretches into eternity. So that's that streaming light. This morning streams light from the, before the beginning of time, and it was never not here. Um, there are birds, you know, that, that come out and say hello and hop around on the trees. So that's, that's a nice way um, that the world calls. It might also call through the grumbling of your stomach if you're hungry. It might call in the death of someone you really love. Um, but it is always calling. And one way to think about our human task is to discover what are the best ways we can respond to that call. So I'm going to keep touching in on that throughout the afternoons. What are the elements of discovering the best ways, the most beautiful ways, the riskiest ways, um, the most possibly helpful ways that we can respond to the calls that we're constantly receiving? Before I do that, um, I want to go a little bit underneath that. As I was listening to you last night, I was thinking that this is a group, it seems to me, my impression is, my story about you is, that you are a group of people with a lot of intelligence and deep-heartedness and, relatively speaking, a lot of resources in your life. Um, And I don't just mean financial, I mean cultural and spiritual and social and all of that. So if learning to embrace change, which some of you express seems like quite a difficult task, isn't something that has um, been figured out by you yet with your deep intelligence and your deep heart and your resources, chances are that it's not a matter of doing more of what you're already doing. Chances are it's not a matter of tweaking what you're already doing. Because if it were simply that, you would have gotten there already. I have complete confidence in that. So um, we who toil in the, in the fields of the Dharma really feel that what it offers is a kind of fundamental and radical reorientation to life. It's not a matter of doing more of the same or refining the same uh, or tweaking the same or even of adding new skills to basically the same set. It's really a matter of reorienting how we are in our lives and how we hold our human lives. Um, And then from that place, we look at a question like embracing change. So I am remembering something that the astronomer Carl Sagan used to say. Um, He said, if you really want to make a true recipe for how to bake an apple pie, you have to start with the Big Bang. (laughs) And I feel a little bit like that, and I would guess that perhaps my colleagues feel a little bit like that too. So I'm not going to take us back to the Big Bang, but I am going to take us back maybe to the formation of the galaxies, okay? To, to a question there that relates so directly to how we relate to change. And here is that question. Do you trust your life? 
Okay, so first of all, notice what happens when I ask that. Do you trust your life? What happens? <gasps> right away. Okay? And we're going to sit with this in meditation in a minute. But I wanted to do a little bit of framing about the nature of the question. I'm not asking you, do you trust your life? Do I trust my life to give me what I think I want? Or to even to give me what I think I need? I don't trust my life to turn out the way I think it ought to. I don't even trust my life to keep me alive. I will trust my life as I'm leaving this life as well. Um, it's not that kind of exchange. It's not about, I trust my life because it gives me what I want or what I need or what my story is about what's important. It's not even that I trust my, that I always understand my life. I trust it even though a lot of times I don't know what's going on. I don't understand what's happening. I can't see it. I can't hold it yet. Um, and yet, I trust it. And that, in a way, makes all the difference. If you don't fundamentally and unconditionally trust your life, what are you running on? What is the engine? that creates the, the energy that you're running on. For a lot of people, that might be willpower. You might be running on will because you don't trust that if you put your foot down, not only will the ground be there, but the ground will come up to meet your foot. So you've got to push through. You've got to will it. You've got to make it happen. And think about how this relates to what you hold about change. I've got to will it. I've got to make it happen. It's on me. I've got to figure this out. I've got to fix this. I've got to understand this. And then imagine the shift where you feel, here's the situation. And as I said last night to someone, what I'm going to do is I'm going to listen and pay attention and see if I can discern what the situation wants, what is arising in the world of which I am a part, and what is the best way I can participate. That's what trusting your life is like. I think my favorite story about it is about a, um, a Japanese mother of a daughter who became a photojournalist in the last Afghan war. Remember the one with the Soviet Union? And she went to Afghanistan during that war and um, was working on the front lines and was working so close into combat that she ended up being killed in a battle there. And she was buried hurriedly in the mountains of Afghanistan by the troops she was with. And when word got back to her mother who lived in a small Japanese village, very traditional life, had hardly ever left the village, let alone Japan. She had done what was often customary at the time, which is when her baby daughter was born, she began to sew a wedding kimono for her, a wedding kimono that her daughter never wore because she chose a very different kind of life. And that mother who had 
barely ever left her village, packed up that wedding kimono and flew to Afghanistan and found her daughter's hasty temporary grave in the mountains, saying, I will find her, I will wrap her in her wedding kimono and I will take her home and bury her right. And what I hear that mother saying is, when I was sewing this kimono for you, this is not what I imagined for your life. This is not what I would have wanted for your life. But it was the life that you chose. It was the life that happened to you. And I bless it. I bless this life that I don't understand. So the companion question to do I trust my life is can I bless my life no matter what happens? even when terrible things happen, even when incomprehensible things happen, do I bless my life for the simple fact that it is my life given to me to live? So what I would like to do is take that question into meditation as we do with koans. And I'll give you a very quick introduction to um, meditating with a koan. You begin by finding just enough stability and quiet, and you've been given some really wonderful ways of doing that this morning. So whatever felt to you conducive to quiet and stability. Just enough quiet and stability so that you can welcome in the koan, which in this case is, do I trust my life, as a noble guest. That's the attitude we want to take. Please come in. Let me make some tea. What do you have to tell me after this long journey you've taken from 1,500 years and another continent ago? We don't do that because koans are especially precious, um, and so we only treat them as noble guests. We do that as training so that we can welcome everything that happens to us as a noble guest. That's what the practice is about. So get a little bit quiet, get stable enough that you can make a cup of tea (laughs) for your noble guest. I'll ask the question, repeat it to yourself a few times, and then let it go. And um, a way to think about it is as though the koan is a stone, a stone that you're dropping into a still pool, and you're going to just drop it in, you're going to watch the ripples. So in koan meditation, we're interested in what happens but not in the ways that we're used to thinking about things, trying to figure things out, trying to discover the meaning. None of that is going to be helpful. What is going to be helpful is is to maintain as much as you can a state of listening and attention to what arises. Is it an emotion? Is it a physical sensation? Is it a thought, a memory, an image? Whatever it is, let it rise, notice it. You don't have to do anything about it. You don't even have to figure out what it means. In fact, it's good if you don't 
try to figure out what it means. Let it rise and let it fall. And keep doing that until if you feel that you you know, bought a ticket for the thought train and you're off, come back to that practice that allows you to be quiet and stable and then drop the koan in again. Okay? So we're just going to do this for a little bit and then once we have taken that question in, and you've noticed the difference between when I ask the question and we're just sitting here staring at each other, um, and, and the difference between that and when you bring it into a meditation, what happens. And then I'm going to ask you um, just a couple more questions while you're in that stable place, and we'll see what happens, okay? So, calm and stable enough to welcome the noble guest. Um, everybody rings different numbers of bells, and I know that that can be confusing. Um, we do four to begin and one to end. Do I trust my life?
if you can answer yes, maybe I hadn't thought about it quite like that, but yes, I do trust my life. What responsibilities and worries and ways of seeing things can you put down? Because it's already being taken care of. What is the backpack you can set down forever? If you answer no, I don't yet trust my life. What is that like? What are you doing instead? And can you begin to imagine what it would be like to live as though when you took a step, not only were you certain that the ground would be there under your foot, but you would feel as though the ground were coming up to meet your foot.
Would anyone like to speak to this question about trusting your life or any of the other things around it? Would anyone be willing to do that? Yes, do we have a, do we have a mic somewhere? Ah, great, thank you. Great. My answer was yes. Um, and a lot of that has to do with it feels like my life has proven over and over to me that in some way it knows better than I do. And so um, there has been an aspect of, I don't know what, what the word I could use is maybe fortune <laughs> that I feel that has been part of my experience. But then when you talked about letting go of things, that was the really hard part because even though I know that it is true that I have all this fortune, there are a number of things that I'm not willing to let go of. Um, one of them is anxiety. Um, there's a certain amount of anxiety that I'm clinging to. <laughs> and I almost feel like it's necessary for me to have it for whatever reason. And the other one was guilt. Um, this feeling that uh, I really couldn't let myself completely get my eye off the ball here. And so those are my, that's where I went. Thank you. Can you raise the mic just a little? Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Sorry for that. Do you trust the mic? Uh, Well, I do now. (laughs) Um, But my answer is yes, because in the last six years, I have have probably um, visited with the prospect of death very closely um, with an incurable form of leukemia and a stem cell transplant that was very high risk, high reward, and then breast cancer. And here I am. And I think that the takeaway from that, uh, and from just all of the relationships and the love in my life, is to live my life more purposefully. And by that, I don't mean to make more money. I mean to do so in a way that um, contributes to society at large. So that was really what came through to me on this meditation. Thank you. If I could make a suggestion for, for people like you 
there's another question you might want to ask, which might be the next thing. Um, I remember at a certain point in my life around a, a, a medical diagnosis, you know, of, of realizing, oh, my death just started walking towards me. And I don't know how long it's going to take to get here. It could be, you know, five minutes and it could be 40 years. I don't know. But it's walking toward me. And, of course, truly my death was always walking towards me. The fact is what happened was I noticed that it was. But then, the, then it occurred to me, it was right around <clears throat> the time that I first started working with this question, of, do I trust my life? I thought, ah, do I trust my death? That's the question that goes along with that, if you've really been confronted with that. So if, if you can respond to do I trust my life with yes, consider taking up do I trust my death. Yeah, good. Um, my answer was no. And the um, second question about what you've done instead is I think I've overachieved and tried to prove myself, and I'm always pushing myself to do better, do more, do, um, I guess, compare myself to others, and I always have to come on top. So um, my answer was no. So that, <clears throat> that's a kind of will, right? That's a, you have willed your way through achievement to make up for that, yeah? Yes, yeah, so how do I turn it around? It's, exa <laughs> it's exhausting, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, that's what we'll be talking about. Thank you. All over. I thought my answer was going to be no. Do I trust my life going into the meditation? And it turns out that it ended up being yes, because... I've, I've, I've willed my way through much of my life, and just to have it brought to my, as a possibility during this workshop, that I don't have to do that was just like a wonderful paradigm shift for myself. So I just found that very interesting. Great. Um, so my answer was also no. Um, and I think what I've been doing instead, I actually, I think I know what I've been doing instead because uh, it's occurred to me in the past, is contending with my life. Um, and I feel like I, I uh, do a fair amount of battle. Um, and what was interesting for me was when you asked about imagining what it would be like if it were different, the thing that occurred to me was that um, rather than the dialogue that I usually have about my worry and anxiety, which is that I shouldn't worry because there's nothing I can do anyway, or there's no purpose in worrying because things will happen and whatever. Um, I, I had the sensation that I didn't have to worry, which is different than shouldn't, um, that I wouldn't need to worry. That's what it would be like. I think I'm probably the only one here who's a little wishy-washy because um, I got both a yes and a no. Um, sometimes I do, and sometimes I, I really don't trust. 
How many uh, other wishy-washy people are there in the room? <laughs> okay, just, just checking. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I, I think the answer for me was when I don't, what do I do? And I realize it's control. You know, I try to control those things that are important to me, and I create a certain amount of anxiety and uh, fatigue, actually, you know. Um, and the times that I do trust it, it it's simply surrender. And um, I realize I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the same all the time. I mean, it does, it does go back and forth. It's, it's still practice. Well, I'm among the wishy-washy. My first uh, response to myself was yes. But I realized um, that, and I think perhaps it goes back to my mom dying when I was a kid, um, I try to control situations. Um, and it, uh, I think if I could just have done things differently, the outcome would have been different. And that still creeps in, even though I've, really worked on letting that go. So, yes and no for me. Okay. Okay. It became clear that I do trust my life, which means I can let go to all the willfulness that has been like my insurance to, to kind of make sure it, 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 it stayed in that level that I trusted. And the question about what would happen if the ground came up to meet me, wow, that means I could do, I could do anything. I just, I saw myself just uh, approaching anything that I wanted to do without, without fear, worry, or concern. And that's, such a freeing concept. Hmm. Okay. Um, I was very moved by your story about the Japanese mother. I just couldn't quite leave the mood of that, um, that she was able to bless the life of her daughter, who she did not understand at all, who inhabited a world that she knew nothing about. So I, that's sort of what I brought to this um, question, is just, can I live with not knowing and not understanding? Yeah. We'll spend some time with that. Anyone else? Um, my answer was unequivocally yes, because I have had, you know, experiences um, where the the ground is constantly coming up to meet me, and I feel very supported, and I feel all of this kind of stuff. Well, you know, even as I'm saying this, I don't feel, I think all of this stuff. So 
I say yes from my mind, but I notice that one of the things that follows me around, which I am conscious of all the time, is doubt. So even though my mind is saying, oh yes, I trust my life, it's also you know wonderful, my day-to-day -day experience in my gut is the feeling of doubt. So kind of like I'm, I'm, you know, wink, wink, oh yeah, yeah, you trust your life, but not, you know, not when I'm alone. <laughs> Over in the front here. Um, my answer was yes, I do trust my life. And um, what, what kept coming up for me was adaptability and um, trusting that I will be adaptable and not fall back into old patterns. Um, and so thinking about um, building slowly good experiences to, to build upon to make my adaptability stronger. Yeah, yeah. And I would love to take from, off from that and um, say that, that what, what we're... What our aspiration is when we're working with a question like this um, was expressed by one of the great koan geniuses over 1,200 years ago um, named Zhaozhou. And Zhaozhou said, it's as though you find a word you've never seen before. You don't know what it means yet, but you recognize the handwriting." To me, that is one of the most beautiful descriptions of living a human life. Every new situation, every change, every encounter, everything that happens, I might not know what, it, what this word means yet, what this event means, what this person <clears throat> means, what this feeling I'm having means, but I recognize the handwriting because I trust my life. It's the handwriting of life. And if I trust... My, if I trust the handwriting, if I recognize the handwriting, I can stay in relationship to discover what the meaning of the word is. Does that make sense? So what we're really saying is that this is a practice about saying to everything that comes, you belong, you are the noble guest, and saying to ourselves, I belong. That's what trusting your life means. I belong. And everything that comes through the gate belongs. And we start there. We don't have to make that case every time. That's where we start. And from there, we can so much more clearly hear the call of each noble guest. And so much more clearly respond without having to wade through thickets of stuff about whether we belong or whether it's right or how we feel about it. Does that make sense? Any questions about that?
So it's entirely conceivable that all of this could come blindingly and, and perfectly and completely clear to you this weekend. And things could ch- turn on a dime and you could walk away completely different than you came. It's also possible that that won't happen. <laughs> Um, which is why we have practice, which is why, as, as a number of you have said, we do this over and over and over again. And what we're talking about, the aspiration here, is toward awakening. And what awakening is, one way, one way to look at awakening, is that we get closer and closer, more and more intimate to what is actually happening. And there are two parts to that both of which are included in what we're doing now. The first part is in order to get more and more intimate with what is actually happening at every level, from that um, cosmic level I was talking about last night, which might have resonated with you and which might have sounded like a bunch of hokum, doesn't matter, down to the most local level, you know, what it feels like in my body right now, for example, and everything in between. Um, The first part of getting closer to that, more intimate with that, is deconstructing what gets in the way. Duh, right? Makes sense. And a number of you talked about how you you started out thinking one thing and then you discovered something else. That's the beginning of the deconstruction process. First you have to know what you really think and what you really feel and what you really believe and what's going on. You have to get um, some clarity about what's operating. And if you, if you discover what are operating are things that you wish weren't operating, like anxiety or rigidity or, or worry, um, then you've got to figure out what's up with that. Why is that happening? And the radical question to ask there is, how is this serving me? Look that in the face. How is this serving me? And can I get along without it? Could I do something else? So half of the process is that deconstruction of our habitual ways of doing things, our habitual patterns, our default settings, where we go when we can't figure out where else to go. The other half of the process is to begin to really experience the space free of those habitual patterns and those compulsions. And it sounds like a number of you had a taste of that. Just a moment, just a few moments, just a sense of what it's like not to be there, but to be here, to be free of that. We need that as well. We need that sense of what we're moving towards, what the process of awakening is leading us towards. And if we keep putting ourselves in situations um, where we're deconstructing and where we're experiencing awakening right now in bursts of an eighth of a nanosecond or ten years, whatever it is, if we keep putting ourselves in those situations, it will happen. But we have to keep putting ourselves in those situations. And a lot of what the Dharma is about is this incredibly sophisticated, well-thought-out, millennia-old bunch of um, ways of putting yourself in that situation over and over and over again. And it will change. 
So if you don't get the blinding turn on a dime, pivot, everything is different experience this week, weekend, take the practice approach. Take the, you're going to need it even if you have the blinding turn on it, because then you're going to have to figure out what to do with it. <laughs> and um, th- that's what practice is for as well. So, so begin to really explore um, what helps you deconstruct, what helps you see it, what helps you put it down without bullying yourself? Um, as, as, as someone you know, really beautifully said, the difference between I shouldn't worry and I don't have to worry is gigantic. And it's the difference between the presence of the bully or not, right? Um, how do you do that deconstruction and how do you put yourself in the way of awakening? Um, I, my grandfather in the Dharma used to say, if you want to get struck by lightning, hang out in open fields during rainstorms. You know, put yourself in the way of it. Enlightenment is an accident, but practice makes you accident prone. Okay? So, um, that's the first section that I wanted to, um, to talk about today. And I'm wondering if you want to keep going or do you want to take a break? We can take a couple of breaks during this afternoon. How's everybody feeling? Take a break? Okay. Any questions before we take a break? Anything, or any comments? Anything anybody wants to say about this constellation of stuff? Yes. Yeah, if we're reporting, you know, what came up as a result of your question, I think I spent a lot of the meditation just being perplexed at the wording of it. In other words, if you'd said, do you trust yourself? Or do you trust other people? Or even if you'd said, do you trust the universe? No, that would have made more sense to me. But I was wondering, you know, my life, what is, what is that? I mean, I don't even know what that is. I don't even know if I trust it or not. Okay, so that's your question. So your question to bring into meditation, to carry when you're walking around, to, you know, as you're eating your cornflakes, whenever, is, what is my life? <laughs> that's, your, that's the question that arose. That's beautiful. So that's the prior thing that you need to really understand, and there's something quite alive for you there. So... So if you had a question like that arise, take it seriously. It has come as a noble guest. So take it seriously and and work with it, okay? In front... And while the mic's coming around, just, just to remind you that when I'm talking about trusting your life, I'm not, only, I'm not talking about just when times are good. I'm talking about all the time. Is that, you stole is my that, question. Go ahead. Go. <laughs> well, because what, I was, what came up for me was um, that it sounded as though it was, do you trust that good things will happen? And it seems as though a lot of people were saying, well, you know, I've gone through so much adversity and so I trust my life because I'm here. Uh, I also went through a, a life-threatening medical condition about six years ago. And my sense from what came up for me from your question was, I trust that 
and I don't know if, if it's true. Yes, I, I, I trust that my life will be like this, that, that a lot of different things will come up in my life, some good, some bad. And so I, does that mean I trust my life? <laughs> you know, I, I'm a little not sure how to quite get, get myself there. So if that's the experience, she meant like this, if that's the experience of your life, that's your life, and if you trust that, you trust your life. Oh, okay. Because well, <laughs> it's, it's, it's tremendously important that it's not just, it's not um, an ego bargain. It's not, mm-hmm. I will love you if you give me what I want. Mm-hmm. That's not what we're talking about. It's, I will love you. I will bless you. No matter what. You don't have to give me what I want. And so love has come up a few times today. And for me, this is the purest form of love because it's not based on any kind of exchange. I won't love you, life, if you give me what I want. I will love you, and we'll go from there. We'll see what happens. There's no transaction. I was thinking... um I guess I was in the wishy-washy category, and I, I kind of felt like mostly yes. And one of the things that made sense to me in the mostly yes I do is that bad stuff, you know, somebody dies, that's bad, um, happens. But somehow, even in something like that, there are things that come from that that might not have happened otherwise that do feel good. So it was a little bit like the story that was told yesterday. And... So what I felt was it was sort of coming in and out of focus. And I felt like there were moments when I thought I trust it because even when bad stuff happens, you can learn something, you can find something. There is something that comes back. And so then when you, whatever you just said about um, reflecting on what helps you deconstruct, that seemed like if I can look at those pieces, mm-hmm. which gives me some trust in a life that seems to throw random and unfair things. Mm-hmm. But then it was gone. And then it sort of came back and then it was gone again. And it was that, I think that's what you were sort of describing. It's just hanging with those little bits. I absolutely. Think. Absolutely. Hanging with those little bits. And in, in, in the case you're describing, you're going to want to look at the evidence that convinces you that you should trust your life. And then at a certain point, you're going to want to drop that evidence away because it's not an evidence-based decision. It's a, it's, a, it's a leap off a cliff. And part of the trust is the willingness to leap off the cliff without being certain, without being sure. You're doing it because, you know what? I can't figure out what else I'd rather be doing in this life. That's why I'm doing it. I'm doing this because I have an intimation that it's intimate to the truest thing I've ever felt but not because I've convinced myself that it's a good thing to do. Does that make sense? So all the convincing in the world, all the deconstruction in the world, all that is really important. And at a certain point, you have to take another step and just do it cuz. Okay. 
Let's take a 10-minute break, and um, no agenda, just go do what you wish. And, and tonight, you're going to ring the bell, walking around ringing the bell when 10 minutes are up, okay? Thank you. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.